0: The United States Supreme Court has recently completed one of the most momentous terms uh, in its history. The court made headlines with cases about gay rights, affirmative action, internet pornography, campaign finance reform, the death penalty, and states' rights, to name only uh, a few of the topics uh, that dominated its agenda. Obviously, this is a good time and an interesting time to be talking about the Supreme Court. But it's also an interesting time for another reason, a more historical. Uh, reason, this year marks the 200th anniversary of the famous case of Marbury versus Madison, in which Chief Justice John Marshall announced that the court had the power of judicial review. Now obviously a lot has changed since, uh, in the two centuries since Marbury. The issues on the Supreme Court's docket today are obviously much different than they were in Marshall's uh, day, but on the other hand, some things haven't changed. The court's work was politically controversial in 1803, just as it is now. In fact, in 1803, when Marbury v. Madison was rendered, Thomas Jefferson, then the president, criticized Marbury as a partisan political power play on the part of the justices. Of course, that's not the way most people today remember Marbury. It's remembered as a great case, not as uh, partisan uh, politics. But Jefferson's critique raises a question that was important in his day and is no less so today which is, how do we criticize the court uh, responsibly? How do we say whether it's doing a good job, apart from asking the obvious question of whether or not we personally happen to agree with the results that it's uh, reached? One last way, how can we criticize the court in ways that don't reduce to mere statements of partisan political preference? It turns out that we can learn a lot about that question by thinking hard about the context and arguments in Marbury. Now, I know that the story of Marbury may be familiar to some of you, but the details are extraordinary, so I hope you won't mind if I dwell on them for a while. So let me take you back in time then, and take you back in time not just to 1803, 200 years ago when Marbury was actually rendered, but to early 1801, excuse me, when the story uh, really gets uh, started. So we're in 1801, and the President of the United States is John Adams of the Federalist uh, Party. Federalists also control uh, Congress, but they're about to lose power. They're despised rivals, Thomas Jefferson's Democratic Republicans have won the last uh, elections and are about to take office. Thomas Jefferson himself is about to become uh, president. The Federalists are upset about this. They, they really dislike the Democratic uh, Republicans, and they want to keep some degree of power. So they make a bid to control the judiciary. There's a vacancy for the position of Chief Justice on the Supreme Court, and President Adams appoints his Secretary of State, John Marshall. Marshall gets confirmed. Remarkably, Marshall stays in office as Secretary of State even after he's been confirmed as Chief Justice of the United States. This would be unthinkable today. I mean, imagine the ruckus. if. Bill Clinton had appointed somebody, or if George W. Bush were to appoint somebody as Chief Justice of the United States, and after that person were confirmed, he continued to serve in the administration. Uh, It would be be a a scandal of, uh, unthinkable is the only word for it. It would be a scandal. If it could happen, it just could not happen. But Marshall stays on in office, uh, and then he gets involved in what leads up to Marbury versus Madison. The Federalists are not only appointing John Marshall to the Supreme Court, They're busy creating several new judgeships to fill with loyal Federalists. Congress creates them, President Adams appoints the Federalists, and the Senate duly confirms the new appointees. This flurry of activity continues literally right up until the Adams administration leaves office. In fact, on the very evening that John Adams is supposed to exit the White House and let Thomas Jefferson take his place, what's he doing? He's busy uh, issuing commissions for new federal judges. In particular, he's issuing commissions for 42 new justices of the peace, all of them going to be loyal Federalists. Sets this up, sends the commissions over to his Secretary of State, John Marshall, with instructions to deliver the commissions. We're literally talking here about midnight appointments of these judges. It's late in Washington. The Jeffersonians are ready to come in. And here's John Marshall, confirmed as Chief Justice, with the task now of delivering commissions for these judges. Marshall gives some of the commissions to his brother, James Marshall, to deliver. One of those commissions is destined for William Marbury, who's supposed to become a justice of the peace in the District of uh, Columbia. Somehow, James Marshall forgets the commission, loses it. In any event, James Marshall fails to deliver Marbury's uh, commission. Now, Marbury knows he's supposed to get this right. He's been appointed. He's been uh, confirmed. And this is how the case gets started. The next day, the Jefferson administration comes to power, Jefferson takes over as uh, president, and Marbury still doesn't have his commission. He wants his job. So he asks the new Secretary of State. The new Secretary of State is James Madison of the Princeton class of 1771. He asks James Madison, class of 71, for his uh, commission. Uh, Madison is not particularly enthusiastic about this, right? So the Jeffersonians have been watching as the Adams administration, because it doesn't trust the Jeffersonians, packs the court with Federalist judges. And now, after they're alive in office, Marbury says, hey, I was one of those guys who was supposed to be getting that uh, commission. It didn't get to me, Mr. Madison. Could you please hand it uh, over? And Madison thinks, well, the last thing I'm going to do is aid this uh, nefarious court packing plan that we've been complaining about. And so he refuses to give Marbury any kind of commission. So what does Marbury do? Well, he does what any good, red-blooded American would do at that point. He hires a lawyer, and he sues. He sues James Madison. And and moreover, he sues James Madison in the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, I don't mean that he sues James Madison in a lower court and says, I'm going to take it all the way to the Supreme Court, which is what people normally do. Now, he files his suit directly in the Supreme Court of the United States. He thinks he's able to do that because Congress has passed a law two years earlier, the Judiciary Act of 1789, a very important law, most of which still uh, remains uh, important, which says, among other things, that the Supreme Court has jurisdiction to hear cases called mandamus actions. Mandamus actions are actions to compel a public official to do something, such as, in this case, deliver a commission to somebody that they're required by law to do, and so it seems like the proper thing to do. Lawyer files mandamus action, Supreme Court, William Marbury versus James Madison demanding a commission. So here we have it. Marbury versus Madison is in the Supreme Court of the United States. Now it's worth pausing right here to notice two things about this case. The first is just how extraordinary it is that the the opinion in this case is going to be written by John Marshall, how extraordinary it is by modern standards that John Marshall is about to sit in this case of Marbury versus Madison. Because after all, he was involved in the case. The the case is about a commission that wasn't delivered. Who was supposed to deliver the commission? John Marshall was supposed to deliver the commission. He's about to sit and decide this important uh, case. And it wasn't just anything he was doing in this case that leads up to uh, uh, the dispute between Marbury and Madison. What he was supposed to do was help pack the judiciary in which he now sits, and in fact which he was sitting at the time, with uh, Federalist Confederates of his. Now by modern standards, this is really wild stuff. Nowadays, there are debates about whether or not Supreme Court justices ought to recuse themselves when law firms appear before the Supreme Court where the law firm includes among its associates, say, the son of the Supreme Court justice. The question is, is that too much of a connection? Is there too much of a possibility there of tainting the judgment for the judge actually to sit where the uh, law firm involved uh, includes a relative of his. The idea that a judge would continue to sit where he personally had been involved in the case before it reached the court uh, would be unthinkable. That judge, I guarantee you, this would be impeached faster than you could say appearance, uh, appearance of impropriety. But Marshall sits. And while the case is controversial, the fact that he sits is not especially Controversial. Think about this the next time you hear someone talking about the politicization of the judiciary uh, in the United States. Our judiciary, and I'll say more about this in a moment, our judiciary is certainly political uh, in the United States, but it's not a recent phenomenon. Uh, this, the American judiciary did not enjoy a virgin birth untouched by uh, the base motivations of partisan politics. On the contrary, it's been political from the get-go. Second thing to notice about Marbury is what a bind Marshall is in. Uh, And some people have suggested maybe he should have recused himself because here he is, you know, he's got an excuse. He could say, I can't sit in this one. After all, my brother and I lost the guy's commission. That's why we're here. Some people say he should have recused himself because the decision he was facing was so difficult if you look at his position. On the one hand, he might rule in favor of his fellow Federalist William Marbury and demand that Madison deliver the commission. That would be a pro-Federalist ruling, and we might think Marshall probably wants to issue that kind of ruling, but it might well have destroyed the courts. Thomas Jefferson had already indicated that if Marshall demanded that Madison and Jefferson issue the commission, he was willing to defy the court's order. He was willing to say, well, the Supreme Court has ordered that, but it's a lawless Federalist court, and I'm not going to listen to it. There was no, remember, remember, there's no long-standing tradition of judicial power in the United States in 1803 for Marshall to draw upon. Nowadays, if a president were to say at some point, look, there's a court order, but I don't care, I'm going to ignore it, that president might easily find himself impeached. In 1803, it was more likely the other way around. That is, if uh, Marshall were to have issued his order, it's quite possible that he would have been uh, impeached. And indeed, the Republican, um, the Democratic Republicans did impeach Federalist uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase in 1804. Uh, he was narrowly acquitted in the Senate in 1805. So one choice is to run headlong into a collision with the Jefferson administration. The other choice is to capitulate, is to say, all right, look, he doesn't, he's not entitled to his commission, we're, we're going to uh, say that it's entirely proper not to deliver the commission that was signed by the president for this duly appointed Federalist uh, judge. That would be capitulating, uh, and obviously that wasn't very attractive to the Federalist Marshall uh, either, both because it would have made the court look weak and because it would have been a decision saying that his Federalist ally was not entitled to the judgeship, uh, which he should have had, but for Marshall's own error. So it seemed like a lose-lose situation. Marshall had only to pick which way to do it. The Chief Justice solved the problem with uh, a kind of a magic trick, a sort of a political uh, magic trick. Some people regard the magic trick, and I'm about to describe it in some detail, some people regard it as an act of high statesmanship and very principled constitutional interpretation. And I should say I incline to that view. But others have taken a very different view of it, uh, and these others include both President Thomas Jefferson at the time and many scholars uh, since then. And they have said, look, This was just an illegitimate partisan power play by a Federalist judge uh, trying to get as much power as he could for his uh, party. But whichever side of that debate you find yourself on, whether you think it's statesmanship or whether you think it's partisan power, few people doubt the brilliance of what it is Marshall did in Marbury. So what did he do? Well, he started off by saying that Marbury had a legal right to his commission. Looking good so far for William Marbury. Marshall says he's entitled to that commission. Mr. Madison should have delivered it to him. But not so fast for Mr. Marbury, because Marshall says, now, there's another question. He's entitled to it, but there's a question about whether or not he's filed his suit in the right court. If he sued for his commission in the wrong court, The Supreme Court might have no power, no jurisdiction, to give him the commission, even if in principle, and even if as a matter of law, he was entitled to it. You have to ask the right court for the right thing to win. Now, Remember, Marbury had sued directly in the Supreme Court because he thought the Judiciary Act of 1789 entitled him to do exactly that. Was he right? Marshall said Marbury had interpreted the statute correctly. Looking good for the Marbury side so far. He's got the right, and he's in the right court. But now Marshall pulls a rabbit out of his uh, hat because things are looking good for the Marbury camp. It also looks like he's on a collision course with the Jefferson administration, which might not look good for either Marshall or Marbury. Marshall says that before the Supreme Court could order Madison to deliver the commission, it had to answer another question. So the Judiciary Act of 1789 says it's okay to sue in the uh, Supreme Court. But, Marshall says, maybe the Judiciary Act of 1789 is unconstitutional. And he says, if it's unconstitutional, then Marbury has no right to sue there, and his case would have to be dismissed. Marshall looks at the act and he says, actually, it is unconstitutional. They couldn't pass that act. They could not allow William Marbury to sue in this court. Why not? Well, says Marshall, if you look at Article 3 of the Constitution, it specifies a small set of suits that could begin in the Supreme Court. You can look at Article Three in the Constitution. I urge you to take a look at Article Three, and you can see the suits specified there. What kinds of suits are they? Well, an example are uh, suits between the states. So you may remember that a few years ago, there was a suit between New York and New Jersey about the Statue of Liberty, about uh, whether it was actually in New Jersey or in uh, New York. And that case was rightly decided in favor of uh, the state of New Jersey. Uh, uh, later on, but that's the kind of suit that has to be filed in the Supreme Court uh, itself. And Marshall says, look, there's a short list. It doesn't say anything about mandamus actions against the Secretary of State or any category that might encompass that. And he says Congress cannot enlarge the set of cases that's actually specified in Article 3. They tried to do that here. They tried to say there was another kind of suit that could begin in the Supreme Court. And he said, therefore, the act's unconstitutional. Now, I'll just note in passing, a lot of people, few at the time and a lot of people afterwards, have criticized this argument and just said it's not a good interpretation of the Constitution. Congress could expand the set of uh, cases. I invite you to look at Article 3 and think about why it is that that might be so, whether or not you find Marshall's argument about Article 3 compelling. But that's not what's made the case famous, and it would be a long digression. So for the moment, I'm just going to put it aside and go on to what Marshall said is the only remaining question. So far, he said, Marbury is entitled to the commission. He's sued in the right court according to the statute, but the statute is unconstitutional. And Marshall says, now there's just one little question left to answer. And that one little question is this, he says. The question is, given that the statute's unconstitutional, does this court have the power to refuse to enforce laws passed by Congress that are unconstitutional? That is, does this court have the power of review. Marshall says, that's the last little question we've got to uh, answer. And he said in the most famous part of his opinion, yeah, the court can do exactly that. He says, it can exercise the power of judicial review, which is to say, determine that laws are unconstitutional like the Judiciary Act of 1789 and refuse to enforce them. So here's the trick he had now pulled off. Marshall had just claimed for the court the power of judicial review, a power that blossoms eventually uh, into or grows, uh, some people may not think it's blossoming, they think it's more like sort of a weed twining itself around the body politic, but grows and perhaps blossoms into the power that we saw exercised this year in the momentous term of the Supreme Court that has been exercised now for two centuries. He claims that power in Marbury versus Madison, and it's a big power, and of course he and his Federalist allies very much want it, because it's a big power for the judiciary, and what branch of government do they control at this point? Exactly one branch of the government And that's the judiciary. So he claims the power of judicial review. Jeffersonians were much less enthusiastic about the power of judicial review. But what's Thomas Jefferson supposed to do at this point? Marshall had just claimed the power of judicial review, but he used it to rule in favor not of Marbury, who, he says, Marbury's about to win this case. He's going to win it, except judicial review forces me to decide in favor of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson could complain, and remember I've already said he complained vociferously about what Marshall had done. He said this was a horrible partisan power play, but what could he do? If Marshall had said, you have to deliver the commission to William Marbury, Jefferson was prepared to say, Mr. Marshall, I'm not prepared to do that. You've misinterpreted the Constitution and usurped power that you the Federalist Judiciary don't have, but Marshall in effect said to Mr. Jefferson, We have the power of judicial review, therefore you can do exactly what you want to do. Jefferson could not find any way to defy the decision because Marshall had not ordered him to do anything. On the contrary, Marshall said, we've got the power, therefore you can do what you like. Now that's the magic trick out of the uh, story. But Marshall doesn't just kind of assert the power and pull this off. Uh, Instead, he offers an elegant and rather famous argument for it, and I want now to turn our attention to that. Um, argument. There are kind of two steps in this argument, the first of them uh, on which Marshall spends a lot of time uh, can be summarized very briefly. He, he repeats this uh, sonorously, more sonorously than I'm about to do, but, uh, but he repeats it several times. Marshall said, look, if Congress were free to ignore the Constitution, that would subvert the whole point of having a written Constitution. Here are Marshall's exact words, or at least one of the passages where he effectively said this. All those who have framed written constitutions contemplate them as forming the fundamental and paramount law of the nation. And consequently, the theory of every such government must be that an act of the legislature repugnant to the constitution is void. Constitutions are fundamental and paramount, therefore any act inconsistent with them, repugnant with them, must be... Well, fair enough. I actually don't think anybody disagrees with that. Marshall took advantage of that point and repeated it several times with more and more grandeur and majesty each time. The more controversial question is, true enough, Congress can't be allowed to violate the Constitution, but should the Supreme Court be able to decide for itself what the Constitution means and ignore laws that conflict with its judgment? Marshall answered this question with a very famous claim in another one of the great lines of the opinion. He said, I'll quote here again, it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. It's emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. And then Marshall pointed out, quite correctly, the Constitution itself is law. In fact, it says so in Article 6 of the Constitution. Therefore, it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the Constitution means, QED. Marshall has a proof for judicial review. It's emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. The Constitution is law. Therefore, we, the judges, can say what it means. Well, not so fast. It's emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to do what? That is, what is it that we count on courts to do? Marshall says to say what the law is. Well, almost, but not exactly. What we count on courts to do is precisely to decide cases that are brought before them. In fact, they're not allowed to do anything but decide cases or controversies. They have no power. They recognize this in Marshall's day. They recognize this in our day. They have no power to issue any opinion about what the law is except in a case. The province and duty of the judiciary to decide cases. You might think it's the province and duty of the legislature to say what the law is. After all, isn't that what Congress does every time it enacts a bill? It declares what the law is. It's this statute. This is the law. Now, of course, we don't think the judiciary should just decide cases. It's not supposed to get them up there and just take them and then decide what it thinks is best. It's supposed to decide cases according to law, and so in order to decide a case, the judiciary has to say something about what the law is, but we might think that means the law as Congress or some other uh, actor or legislature declares the law to be. The fact that judges are supposed to decide according to law does not mean they have the freedom to decide for themselves what the law is. Now, Marshall was shrewd. He was a superb lawyer, and he knew there were problems with his argument, or he knew that there were these problems with his argument. I don't think he thought they were in any sense fatal to the argument. He wasn't all that explicit about uh, the problems. He preferred to say things that people would agree with rather than raise points that were very difficult and that they might disagree with. But he did offer some examples that were designed to drive the point home and to make it plausible that we were talking about the court saying what the Constitution means, rather than just deciding cases pursuant to somebody else's understanding. So he gave the following example. He says, look, the Constitution Constitution says that no person shall be convicted of treason except on the testimony of at least two witnesses. And Marshall said, suppose that Congress were to pass a law saying that you could be convicted of treason on the basis of the testimony of only one witness. He said, Suppose somebody were tried in court on the basis of that law, isn't it obvious that the court should refuse to allow them to be convicted and imprisoned on the basis of the testimony of one witness? Well, it seems irresistible, right? It's hard to believe that if the Constitution specifically says two witnesses and then Congress says just one witness is necessary and then you go to court and you try to put someone away that the uh, court, the Supreme Court or any other court should close its eyes to the Constitution, and that was Marshall's language. He says, should the court close its eyes to the Constitution? It's a great example for Marshall's argument. But again, it's a great example for a somewhat odd reason, One might even say a kind of a a, a tricky uh, reason. It involves the kind of case that virtually never gets to the Supreme Court or to any other court, namely a case involving a provision that seems at least at first glance, and the lawyers can make almost anything complicated, and this one's no exception, but at least at first glance this provision seems like it's pretty clear. Suppose we imagine instead a case about the free speech clause of the Constitution. The free speech clause of the Constitution says, roughly, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Relatively simple, straightforward language, but what does it mean? Hugo Black, who served on the court from 1937 to 1971, used to say it was perfectly simple to say what it was that that uh, provision meant. He said, look, no law means no law. When the Constitution says Congress shall make no law, it means no law. That attitude served him rather well on the court. In fact, he was one of the few justices brave enough to stand up for the rights of Americans persecuted during the Red Scare. As a legal theory, though, no law means no law doesn't make much sense. If you think it does make sense, go to a theater, uh, a crowded theater, shout fire and see what happens to you. No law doesn't really mean no law, at least it doesn't mean no law uh, that regulates speech in any way. Virtually everybody agrees that Congress and other legislatures can pass laws that regulate speech. The question is, which laws actually abridge the freedom of speech? And that question about which laws abridge the freedom of speech? raises what we might call, what academics like to call in our academic uh, language, we, what we might call a meta-question. We have a question about the question, so it's a, a meta-question. And the question is the question of how we go about figuring out what laws abridge the freedom of uh, speech. So let me just stop and underscore this. And I'll actually, it's not a difficult word, but I'll write it up here just as a reminder because it's one of the two big questions that we need to use when we assess how it is that the Supreme Court has done is, how do we go about interpreting the Constitution of the United States? How do we go about interpreting the free speech clause? What does the how question mean? It means that you need some sort of view. If it's all worked out, you might call it a theory. You need some sort of view about how constitutional text, history, and values come together to determine the Constitution's meaning. So let me give you an example. Shortly after the First Amendment was ratified, The Federalists passed some pretty nasty censorship uh, statutes, the Alien and Sedition Acts, which made it a crime, roughly speaking, to criticize the government. Some Federalists thought these statutes were perfectly consistent with the Free Speech Clause. Should that historical fact matter to how we interpret the First Amendment? That is, when we think about the Free Speech Clause, Should we care that some of the people who actually participated in writing the free speech clause thought that these nasty censorship statutes were consistent with it? Or should we ignore that historical fact? Are there some historical facts that matter, uh, even if this one uh, doesn't? In order to interpret the Constitution, in order to interpret clauses that are more complicated than the one that says you've got to have two witnesses, because we all know what two means, and even lawyers have trouble complicating the word uh, two there, In order to interpret provisions like the free speech clause, you're going to need some theory about how history, values, and constitutional text come together. Marshall's example about the two witnesses is powerful precisely because it's one of the few provisions that doesn't seem to require any such theory. But it leaves open the following question. Should the court have the power to decide for itself what the Constitution means in cases where there is a dispute about how to interpret? the Constitution. Let's go back to something Marshall said earlier that I've already quoted. He said that if Congress could ignore the Constitution, that would subvert the whole point of having a written Constitution. Sometimes people try to extend this point a bit. Marshall said if Congress can ignore the Constitution, that would subvert the whole point of having a written Constitution. People say, or try to say, look, unless the judiciary enforces the Constitution, Congress will inevitably ignore the Constitution, and so there's no point in having a written Constitution. Unless the judiciary enforces it, there's no point in having it, and therefore even in the cases where there is a controversial question about how, the judiciary should be the one to enforce it. I think there's a lot to that argument, but put so bluntly, the argument is wrong. In fact, it's clearly wrong. Constitutions are meaningless if nobody enforces them, but judges aren't the only officials who might enforce constitutions, even in cases where the meaning is controversial. We might trust somebody else to do it. For example, we might trust Congress. Now, that might seem like an obvious case of asking the uh, fox to guard the uh, hen house. Uh, We're going to say to Congress, look, it's up to you guys to decide what the content of these restrictions on you um, are. Uh, and some people believe that they say whatever whatever institution we're going to trust it can't be Congress. These are restrictions on Congress. But throughout American history, there have been uh, terrific people, very smart people, politicians, statesmen, scholars who have thought we should trust Congress more and the court less. So let me tell you what those people have said in answer to this argument that says that well that's just the fox guarding the henhouse. First, they've said look there are restraints on Congress, and it doesn't have to be just courts. If legislatures fail to respect the Constitution, then voters have the power to turn them out. So if we believe that the American people really care about their Constitution, and after all, it speaks in their name, it begins with we, the people. If we believe that the American people care about their Constitution, then Congress will not be entirely unsupervised. because The people will be enforcers as against Congress of the Constitution. It's the first thing they've said. The second thing they've said is, look, it's true legislators might fail to respect the Constitution, and they might get away with it but they're not the only ones, judges might fail to respect the Constitution and they might get away with it. Jefferson thought Marshall was doing that in Marbury and many people have thought the court was uh, doing, has been doing that at some point or another in the history uh, since then. That is, most of you probably disagree with at least one thing the court did in the last term. You may disagree with most of the things the court did in the last term. Once we realize there are hard questions about how to interpret the Constitution, we quickly realize that both for good reasons and bad reasons, judges as well as legislators may get the Constitution wrong. And so, some people have suggested look, it may not be so much a case of asking the fox or deciding whether the fox should guard the hen house, but deciding which fox should guard the hen house. Either way, we're going to have some institution with a temptation to decide the cases its way in its interests. Finally, People have pointed out that in some kinds of cases, we do trust Congress to enforce the Constitution, and even the Supreme Court thinks it's a good idea to trust Congress rather than doing itself. Here's an example, and the example I'm going to give you is from a pretty amusing case. Um, uh, The case is called United States versus Nixon, and it's an impeachment case, and you think you know now what I'm talking about, but you probably don't. There may be a couple of you who do, uh, because this this is not the case of Richard Nixon. I'll come to him a little bit later. It's the case of Walter Nixon. Uh, relatively anonymous, thank goodness, federal judge. So let me tell you about Walter Nixon. Walter Nixon in the late 80s or early 90s was convicted of um, accepting bribes when he was deciding uh, cases Um, and obviously that's a no-no for uh, judges and uh, Walter Nixon was convicted and sent to jail. But Walter Nixon did not want to resign from his uh, judgeship. Uh, Federal judges. Uh, get paid salaries that they think are too low and that indeed are pretty low by comparison to what many of them were getting before they took the bench. But it looks pretty good to Walter Nixon he says, I don't want to resign my judgeship and I want to continue to collect my federal judicial salary while in jail for taking bribes for the way he was deciding cases. Now, there's only one way to get a judge out of office. You can't do it by jailing him. That does not remove a judge from office. The only way you get a judge out of office is you impeach him. That's the only way to remove a judge from office. They can resign or they can die or you can impeach them. So the House of Representatives impeached Walter Nixon. You can imagine this was not a very controversial proceeding. They send it over to the Senate. The Senate tries him. It's not controversial there either and, in fact, the Senate does not have a big public proceeding like they did with uh, in the Clinton impeachment. Uh, What they do is they have a committee, Uh, hear the evidence against Walter Nixon. You can imagine about how it goes. He's been convicted of bribery, uh, of taking bribes uh, and then they voted to remove him from office. You might think that's the end of the story. The guy's been convicted. He's been impeached. But Nixon is not the sort of man who gave up easily. He did what any red-blooded American would do under the circumstances. He sued. And he sued, claiming that his trial in the Senate had been unconstitutional. He claimed, in particular, that he was entitled to a hearing in front of the full Senate, the kind of hearing that uh, uh, Bill Clinton later uh, got. Now, this is... Um, This is real chutzpah on the part, I think, of Walter Nixon. I mean, the guy is sitting in prison for taking bribes, and he's been impeached, and he's suing because while he's in prison, he wants to continue to draw a judicial salary. So uh, Nixon's case eventually reaches the Supreme Court. You can imagine he's not too popular in any circles these days. This is not what the judiciary wants as sort of the the poster boy for the American judiciary. Here's Walter Nixon. Nixon has been convicted, impeached, and wants to continue to draw his salary. Not surprisingly, Walter Nixon loses in the Supreme Court. Court, But here's the interesting thing about Walter Nixon's case. The Supreme Court does not say about Nixon's case, look, he loses because it was perfectly fine for the Senate to try him in front of a committee. They don't say, we're going to answer the question about how to interpret those provisions about impeachment and we're going to figure out what they mean and say that committee trials are perfectly fine. Instead, what they say is, look, it's up to the Senate to interpret the provisions of the Constitution that deal with the impeachment of judges. That's their interpretive business, not ours. That's an example of trusting Congress to make the determinations. And this is a bit of a special case. That is, why does the court do that in this particular case? Well, we talked about different foxes uh, uh, guarding the hen house. If it were up to the judiciary to decide under what circumstances you could remove judges for improper conduct, that would really look like the judiciary guarding the, uh, guarding the Hen House. That is, they would say, look, we're, we're able to police the Senate when it decides whether or not we should be removed even if, even if we've been convicted of taking uh, bribes. And so there, there were incentives here for the court to say this decision goes to the uh, Senate. It's a special case, but it's also a special case that, I- that illustrates a more general principle and one that some people have said should be taken much more seriously, which is we might trust different institutions to interpret the Constitution on different issues. We might trust the Senate in this case. We might trust Congress more generally. We don't have to trust the court every time we want to decide a question about how to interpret the Constitution. And that brings us to the second of the two, which it's actually an anagram, second of the two uh, questions that one needs to answer in order to be able to criticize the court uh, responsibly. The second question is a question about who should have authority to interpret the Constitution. Should judges have authority to interpret the Constitution? Should legislators have authority? Should presidents have authority? <coughs> should citizens have authority? Should all of them have authority to interpret the Constitution? Or more precisely, who should have how much authority to interpret the Constitution with regard to which issues, who should have how much with regard to which issues, because we could say the court should interpret on many issues, maybe on free speech issues, but the Senate, as in Nixon's case, should be able to interpret the provisions governing the impeachment of uh, judges. We can divide up constitutional provisions among different uh, branches, but I'll just put who up here, because it's an anagram of how, and plus uh, uh, who, how much, and which would just be uh, confusing and barely fit with on your on your screen. So how and and who. I I hope it's apparent that these two questions about the court are conceptually distinct from one another. That is you can give a range of different answers to how and a range of different answers to who. You might agree with somebody about how and not about who or vice versa. So for example you might decide that judges have authority to decide what counts as a fair impeachment trial. And there were dissents in the Nixon case, Um, uh, justices who thought that the court itself ought to decide what would count as a fair trial. Or you might think that the Senate has authority to decide what counts as a fair trial. Either way, no matter how you answer the who question, you're going to have to answer the how question. So if you say the Senate has the authority to decide what counts as a fair trial, then presumably you ought to offer advice to senators, senators will have the responsibility to formulate some theory about what constitutional restrictions operate upon them in those cases. A different actor gets the responsibility for answering this question, but the question doesn't go away if we move who away from the judiciary to some other actor. So I think we can now say in general what it means to criticize the Supreme Court and do it responsibly. That is to do it in a way that doesn't reduce merely to partisan political objections. In order to do that, you have to have views about two questions. If they really develop the views again, we can say the theories about two questions. One is, how do we interpret the Constitution? What sorts of arguments count as good arguments about the Constitution? Does an argument that something is unjust count as a good argument that it's also unconstitutional? Does an argument that a practice was accepted at the time of the founding, as the Alien and Sedition Acts were by some Federalists, count as an argument in favor of the constitutionality of a similar practice today. We'll have questions about how and we'll have questions about who. We'll need answers, in other words, about under what circumstances the judiciary is a good answer to the who question and answers to questions about how it is that the judiciary should interpret the Constitution in those cases. Now my goal today is mainly to highlight the importance of these two questions rather than to uh, answer them, but I do want to mention four distinctions that people have sometimes used to to, uh, talk about these two questions. There are four four distinctions in a mixed bag. The first distinction is useful, the next two are very common but misleading, and the last one is itself uh, a little of each that is a little bit useful and a little bit misleading. So here they are. First distinction useful I think quite important. Distinction between judicial review and judicial supremacy. Judicial review and judicial supremacy. Judicial review is what we've been talking about so far. It's the court's power to determine for itself whether laws are constitutional and to refuse to enforce those that are not. The court's power to decide for itself what the Constitution means and then to refuse to enforce laws that it decides on the basis of its own judgment are unconstitutional. Judicial supremacy involves a stronger claim. Not only that the Court has the power to decide for itself what the Constitution means, but also that other branches must honor whatever interpretations are announced by the Court. If one accepts judicial supremacy in full, then it's always illegitimate for the elected branches to resist the Court's rulings, even when they believe those rulings to be severely unjust and inconsistent with the best understanding of the Constitution. The question of supremacy is about whether or not the other branches have to salute the judiciary's interpretations once announced. Many Americans today, it's probably the the kind of the mainstream conventional opinion, many Americans today accept not only judicial review but also judicial supremacy. They think that when a court rules, at that point everybody else should stop and follow the court's ruling, you could still argue about whether it's correct. You may try to convince the president to appoint and the Senate to confirm justices who might be willing to reverse the ruling, but until the court speaks again, people think that uh, judicial interpretation of the Constitution commands deference from the other branches. But it's quite possible to separate judicial review and judicial supremacy, uh, and and many people throughout history have. Abraham Lincoln, for example, uh, and especially in his first inaugural uh, address, uh, endorsed judicial review but not judicial supremacy and and argue that Americans ought not to endorse the doctrine of judicial supremacy. Many scholars today and I'm among them uh, believe that judicial supremacy cannot be accepted without uh, major qualifications even though in my case at least I'm enthusiastic about uh, the merits of judicial review. The next two distinctions are uh, in my view less useful but unfortunately they're also much more common than the one that I've just mentioned between judicial review uh, and judicial supremacy. The first distinction, and surely you've heard about this one, the first distinction is between judicial restraint and judicial activism. Judicial restraint and judicial activism. Now, there's a way to make sense of this distinction, and if one's careful to use it this way, I don't have any quarrel with it. One could say, look, you're in favor of judicial restraint if you believe that judges should defer to legislatures across the board. If you think, in other words, that the answer to the who question is almost always, or let's say flat out always, Congress or legislature, that the judges should just stay out of constitutional interpretation, then certainly you're in favor of judicial restraint. And one could then say that anybody who believes that judges should make independent judgments about the Constitution's meaning is in favor of judicial activism. Now that distinction is perfectly coherent. And there are actually a few people, uh, mainly academics I think, but a few people who believe in judicial restraint of exactly the sort that I've described. They say courts should not be interpreting and enforcing the Constitution. But in the general American population, people like that are quite rare. Usually people disagree not about whether the court should be involved in enforcing the Constitution at all, not about an across-the-board answer to a who question, but about which rights and principles judges should enforce. So to take two examples from the Supreme Court's most recent term, it won't fit everybody, But a lot of conservatives believe the court should have stricken affirmative action programs across the board. And a lot of liberals um, were pleased that the court struck down uh, the Texas sodomy law uh, in the gay rights uh, case. They disagree about which provisions the court should strike down, which laws the court should strike down. But they don't disagree that the court should sometimes be involved in striking down uh, laws. In other words, these people say, look, when the judges enforce rights and principles that I like." the judges are being restrained and faithful to the Constitution and not acting on the basis of their own values. But when judges enforce rights and principles with which I disagree, the judges are being activist at that point. They're going beyond their constitutional warrant and being unfaithful to the Constitution. Now, there are real arguments there. I don't want to discourage the arguments, but this way of talking about what the court does mixes up the how and who questions. It takes what is really a dispute about how to interpret the Constitution, about which rights matter and how we get there, and pretends that it's a dispute about who should interpret the Constitution, about how much deference courts should give to Congress. In the United States today, in the general population, most people, I think, disagree not about the who question, but about the how question. They accept judicial authority, but disagree about when it's appropriate for it to be exercised. Another distinction, the third of the four, that's a little bit like that. The distinction between strict construction and loose construction of the Constitution. Strict and loose construction of the Constitution. Purports to be a distinction entirely about how. Do you you construe it strictly or loosely? It's a very old distinction too. It was a favorite. Now, I promised Richard Nixon at some point when I mentioned Walter. He's not going to get quite as much airtime here as Walter, but I'll mention Richard briefly. The distinction was a favorite of Richard Nixon's. He was famously in favor of strict uh, construction. But it was much older than that. It was also used by states' rights advocates to criticize Chief Justice John Marshall. And Chief Justice John Marshall, in fact, explained the problem with the distinction in a case called Gibbons versus Ogden. Marshall said, look, the distinction between strict and loose construction is misleading, and it's misleading for a simple reason. Strict might mean either of two things. It might mean faithful, or it might mean narrow. So it might be the case that you strictly construe the Constitution when you're faithful to it, no matter where it takes you, even if it requires you to be quite bold, or, he said, it might mean that you, should, you strictly construe the Constitution when you construe it narrowly. That is, construe the rights that it promises narrowly and construe the powers that it gives to Congress narrowly. He emphasized that a faithful construction of the Constitution might be either broad or narrow, depending upon your views about how the Constitution should be interpreted. Almost everybody agrees that one should be faithful to the Constitution But many people disagree about uh, whether the rights it guarantees are narrow ones or broad ones. The effect of the language about strict construction is to take a dispute about how the Constitution should be interpreted and kind of paper it over and disguise it as a dispute about whether to be faithful to the Constitution. Again, I think it's not that. It's a dispute about how and we should recognize it as that and debate it as that. Final distinction distinction between conservative and liberal views of the Constitution or equally well between uh, conservative and liberal Supreme Court justices. Um, Everybody distinguishes between conservatives and liberals on the Supreme Court. If you follow the Supreme Court at all, you have a list in your mind and it's probably roughly accurate. I I think there's um, considerable truth to this distinction. Uh, I'm always amazed, and it happens frequently, I'm always amazed when uh, judges uh, or uh, my academic colleagues deny that political views tell us anything about what it w- is that judges uh, will do. There's overwhelming evidence uh, to anybody who reads the newspapers or to anybody who reads political science journals that is the newspapers tell us this is a matter of common sense. The political science journals uh, tell us this as a matter of uh, extremely difficult regression analyses but they come out the same way that is political views do matter to the way in which uh, Supreme Court justices decide cases. But on the other hand, we should be careful about using these two labels, because the blunt labels of conservative and liberal are too crude to capture the principles that animate Supreme Court justices. Sometimes the justices agree unanimously in big cases that have a liberal-conservative split in society. So here are two examples going each way. In 1997, the Supreme Court rejected nine to nothing challenges to Washington and New York laws prohibiting physician-assisted suicide. 9-0 9 nothing rejecting laws prohibiting physician-rejecting uh, constitutional challenges to two laws prohibiting physician-assisted suicide, even though many liberals had argued that those laws were unconstitutional. Complete agreement. And conversely, in 2001, the court refused 9 nothing to impose substantial constraints on the power of Congress to delegate discretion to administrative agencies, even though many conservatives argued in favor of such a restriction. That is, the conservatives said Congress should have less power to delegate discretion to agencies. The court rejected that argument. Nine, nothing. Even in controversial 5-4 cases, the split isn't always liberal conservative in any comprehensible way. So uh, a famous and simple example, in the flag burning cases that held that there was a First Amendment right that protected flag burners from being sent to prison, Justices Brennan and Scalia, guarded as the most liberal and most conservative justice on the court at the time, voted together to uphold the free speech claim. Justices Stevens and Rehnquist, two of the most liberal and conservative justices on the court now, voted to deny the the free speech claim. The truth in the liberal conservative distinction is that constitutional interpretation has political elements. And again, how could it be otherwise uh, than that? Our examination of Marbury should remind us, judicial review is, as I have uh, said earlier, Uh, and has been uh, political from uh, its very origins. But to say that judicial review is political doesn't mean that it's reducible to partisan politics. Done right, constitutional adjudication depends upon giving principled, not merely partisan answers to two questions. And The two questions again are these. How do you interpret the Constitution? What's the right method for doing it? And who should have how much authority to interpret the Constitution? If we want to criticize the court responsibly rather than merely politically, we have to develop views about these two questions. That was true in Marshall's day when Marbury was decided, and it's true in our own day just as much.